there, Bulldogs. Welcome to Career Chat. This is Kylie, your host, an alumnus of DeSales University and a former career ambassador. I'm so excited to be hosting this podcast to help provide you with valuable information relating to career development. Prepare to hear from some amazing people as we help you explore your interests, develop your skills, and implement a plan for a fruitful career in the future. With that being said, let's get started with this week's episode. Dr. Nitro, thank you so much for joining me, uh, zooming in with me, I guess, <laughs> for this podcast. I'm so happy that you're you're zooming in with me today. Well, thanks for having me, Kylie. Um, when the Career Development Center was putting together their podcast series, I was very excited about it. So I'm I'm happy to be here and to be part of the the project. Wonderful. So I've heard very great things about you um, from other students and um, also the professional staff at the Career Development Center, but I'd love if you would just introduce yourself. So tell me a little bit about where you came from, uh, where you are now and your role that you're in now to sales and any career goals that you may have for your future as well. Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, so, um, um, you know, like you said, my name is Sarah Nitro and I'm, I have a different, a number of different hats that I wear at DeSales University, um, way more hats than I wore than when I started here in mm-hmm. August of 2010. Um, so I've, I've finished my 11th year. I'm heading into my 12th year, which is really strange, honestly, to think of myself as maybe a a senior faculty member versus like a new faculty or junior faculty member. Um, Yeah, there's no in between. You're either junior or senior. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm I'm not quite sure about that. Um, You know, but when I started, I, the, the, really the only hat I wore was, was faculty member. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's the trajectory for, for, for many academics who um, complete a PhD program. For me, that was a PhD in, in history, um, a American history, very broadly speaking, um, and my my area of, of research and scholarship is really American religion and American Catholicism to really kind of um, pin it down. And, you know, we all start as faculty. That's the hat that we wear. And, mm-hmm. and for, for many of us, it's, it's the primary hat that we wear through much of our career um, or much of the career within academia. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I imagined that that was the primary hat that I was going to be wearing my entire academic career. And if you would have asked a version of myself five years ago, um, even three years ago, that I would be wearing the current hat that I wear, um, that of division head of liberal arts and social sciences, you know, very administrative um, oriented hat. That's, mm-hmm. That is my primary hat now. I would have never anticipated that. I would have never expected that. I most definitely would have told myself that is not for you mm-hmm. uh, because of the nature of the responsibilities, the, the type of collaboration and interaction that that requires. And and deep down, I am an introvert. So both teaching and administrating requires a degree of performance. Yeah, I was about to say that. (laughs) Being on that does not always come naturally to me, or Mm -hmm. I think I should say requires um, a a lot more... um, 
uh, a time to get energized and prepared and comfortable with what I am being asked to do, whether I am, you know, teaching on a topic related to the Civil War, or if I'm leading a meeting with my faculty, or if I'm interacting one-on-one with a a student or a faculty member in a mentoring Mm -hmm. teaching role. Um, You know, I I take all of those tasks in in the context of the relationship very seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so that takes a lot of kind of um, uh, work on my part to get ready ready for So my trajectory has been very um, interesting. To say the least, it, it, again, because it's not what I expected, um, but I've, I've always been somebody who has enjoyed learning um, mm-hmm. and enjoyed learning through new challenges and, and opportunities um, and, and growing from those. Um, I am most definitely a very different teacher. Um, than I was when I started. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say I'm also very much, even just in the few years that I've held leadership roles on campus, I'm a different leader and I'm a different administrator than I was when I started kind of dabbling in it five years ago, three years ago, and to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing that I will continue to develop um, and grow. Um, so in terms of career goals for the future, you know, part of where I'm at right now, um, is still determining, do I want to continue down this path of administrative work? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because uh, some faculty will kind of have that administrative hat on for a while, um, for, you know, several years, but then they take that hat off and they go back to primarily being a faculty member. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm at an interesting moment and opportunity to kind of think about, you know, what is going to be my primary fork in the road? Mm-hmm. Um, am I going to kind of just keep on going down this particular track and cultivating a skill set and contributing to the life of the university as an administrator and possibly aspiring to higher roles within mm-hmm. higher education? Or is this something that may be temporary? And I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm going to enjoy this and confront the challenges and opportunities as they are currently. Um, and then maybe I want to go back to maybe just being a faculty member because mm-hmm. um, there's, you know, benefits and drawbacks that, that come with both positions um, in, in, there are things that you're letting go of, or you can't hold on to as much uh, when you're a faculty member or, mm-hmm. or when you're an administrator. So I'm, I'm cognizant of that as well. Wonderful. Yeah. So I know that the focus of our um, podcast and something that I recently got very interested in is sort of making the most out of your degree and also like the importance of the liberal arts. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of times in from the perspective of someone who studied science for like ever um there's a lot of people within science and I guess not within science but that don't understand the beauty within the liberal arts and the things that you can pull out of it that isn't just the straight facts um so I'm curious as to why you specifically actually chose a liberal arts degree through my undergrad, I was a history and writing and rhetoric double major. Oh, wow. Um, actually, <laughs> I, I actually started off as an elementary education major. <laughs> I mean, for, I, I was telling everybody, I, and I had this vision of being an elementary 
teacher, like kindergarten, mm-hmm. first grade oh. for the longest time, like the longest time. So that, that was my major. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be somewhat dismissive of people who told me, oh, most people change their majors. Um, but I'd always loved history. Like I'd always loved um, and more history in terms of the story, it, only with time did I come to really appreciate history as understanding mm-hmm. how something happened or why something happened. Recognizing that the why questions and the how questions are, are so complex and so intriguing. So my, I, I you know, was first semester undergrad and at, at the end of it, I was like, I'm done with elementary education. <laughs> but I had one history class while as part of my general education curriculum, um, mm-hmm. very similar type of, of institution to DeSales, small liberal arts tradition with a general education curriculum that all students were required to take in addition to their major program. And it was a Western civilization part one. And I loved it. I loved that class more than I was enjoying any of the sort of introductory level courses that I was taking as an elementary education major. I I thrived in them all, but I was just Mm -hmm. less passionate about what I was learning in the major program than what I was learning in the history class. So so part of my realization was I need to be passionate about Mm -hmm. what I'm learning about, but I can still be curious and engaged even in the content that doesn't give me the same degree of passion, right? I was taking an introductory to psychology course and it's like, I didn't back away from wanting to know the content. I just wasn't as passionate about it. Mm-hmm. So that, that idea of like staying curious is, is to me really, really important. Um, and, and I loved learning. So yeah. I mean, I, I was like, I had no clue what I was going to do with a history degree, um, which is, is, you know, I think a little bit par for the course, you know, even for some of my students. Um, and I was like, I just want to keep learning. So I applied to graduate schools and I had faculty who told me like, you have the chops you, you have, and not just to acquire knowledge. Mm-hmm. Like that wasn't the skill set that they saw in me. What they saw in my um, written work and my engagement in the class was the curiosity, was the passion, and was um, the potential for the kind of thinking mm-hmm. that is necessary within a history degree or that is, is very much embedded within liberal arts. Mm-hmm. Um, continually asking questions, um, thinking about multiple scenarios, the aspects of contextualization and problem solving. So for me, um, that's what I I loved. Like I pursued a degree, um, I pursued a major that I was primarily passionate about. Mm -hmm. And I had no clue what I was going to do in terms of a professional trajectory. Um, and so I was like, oh, let me just go to more school. <laughs> Perhaps not the best approach, um, but at least with a PhD, pursuing a PhD in history, the anticipated trajectory, once you're at that level, is that when you are done and you've completed your degree, that you would be obtaining a job as a uh, as a instructor and, and researcher 
at a college or university. Mm-hmm. And depending on which tier or kind of level, you know, research one versus others, which sort of kind of determine if you're going to mainly be a researcher or will you primarily be a teacher? Okay. Um, I imagined myself being a researcher. I mean, mm-hmm. the whole idea of teaching at the time was like, no, thank you. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I don't like being in front of people. I, I had a public speaking class as part of my writing and rhetoric major. Mm-hmm. And it was like the worst experience of my life because it was so <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but that also was something that I um, developed over time, not just the, the skill set of teaching, mm-hmm. but also a passion for it. It was like, mm-hmm. no, I'm meant to be a teacher. I'll still research. I'm going to still do my scholarship because that is also important to me, but the, I'm primarily want to be a teacher. Wonderful. So, um, a question that I have that I I don't think I prompted you with, but I'm kind of curious, um, in terms of liberal, liberal arts degrees, um, like you have your bachelor's, are there a lot of masters within the liberal arts or is it, is the trajectory normally like bachelor's to PhD immediately? It, it depends. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, and, and when we think about the different disciplines that, that constitute the liberal arts, there, there's a historical narrative there as well. Like mm-hmm. over time there was probably, and, and I don't know that history all that well, um, in terms of what was understood as a, as part of the liberal arts. And then that's sometimes interchangeable with the humanities, depending yeah. on that, but like English history, the languages, mm-hmm. um, theology, philosophy, at least within t- internally within to sales, those mm-hmm. are the kinds of disciplines I'm often thinking about. Um, and for most of those, I think the general trajectory is bachelor's, master's, and then PhD. Okay. Um, my program, I went to Boston College and oh, it I applied straight to a PhD program. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's what I was interested in. Um, So I technically somewhere along the way have a master's, but I didn't do it as a separate degree. I just went straight to the PhD program and and through, um, which was long enough. History PhD programs are fairly long. Oh my goodness. I can't even imagine. And there's probably (laughs) so much to learn too along the way. Um, But so moving on, I'm curious too, I know we spoke a little bit about sort of the benefits to your degree and how you've used that in your current role at DeSales and sort of um, the things that, you know, weren't inherently taught in the history class, obviously, but you've used in oh, your- definitely role. no history class taught me how to be an administrator. Exactly. <laughs> like content-wise, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like you're going to like pull a random fact about like an American war or something and like that's going to be the reason that you're a great administrator, but right. sort of the- the behind the scenes, like underneath the, the normal context of it, what are some things that you've pulled from your classes that have been really beneficial in your role? Sure. So I, I think it'd be two things. Cause I've, I've thought a lot about this mm-hmm. um, um, at, at different points along the way when I've taken on more leadership roles, especially within the past year and trying to like kind of carve out intentional time to reflect on what role I'm playing mm-hmm. and where are my strengths as an administrator. I, I think of myself more as a leader who's administrating mm-hmm. um, and, and where I want to be better, where I recognize my, my weaknesses or areas mm-hmm. of improvement, to put it that way. And, and I consistently lean into the, I, I firmly believe, I should say, that my training as an historian 
and the 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 value that I see in studying history and how I want to study history and how I want my students to study history has informed how I want to lead okay. um, and how I want to administer, whether mm -hmm. that's in my role as needing to kind of manage projects or manage persons or mentor individuals or problem solve or shepherd a, a project through and, and help negotiate an initiative. Um, so kind of let me break those two down. They're, they're related, but I think they can be distinguished from one another. Mm -hmm. um, the, the first one I think is the skill set piece. Um, historians you know, it's a very distinct kind of craft in terms of its methodology, right? Mm -hmm. Same as um, the craft and methodology for somebody who specializes in English literature or the biologist um, or uh, somebody within TV film, right? We have methods that are very particular to our disciplines in terms of, you know, how we think about the materials that we're using and especially mm -hmm. the evidence um, that we need to use to make a story or to tell, especially in my case, um, analyze the how and the why of the past. And so as a as trained historian, one of the points that we are often engaging in is thinking about the larger context. Um, and so maybe just sort of give you an example, um, uh, say from, I'm currently writing a, a, a lecture on, on Concord and the American Revolution for the MFA program. So if we were to think about Concord and mm -hmm. the town and its residents and the role that it played in the American Revolution, um, what might come to your mind, Kylie? Oh. Yeah, I got a question for you. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Can't remember the last time I took a history class. <laughs> Oh my goodness, Concord and the American Revolution. Yeah, Concord, Massachusetts. Little what? towns, now it's a suburb of Boston. Anything that comes to mind with Concord and the American Revolution? Um, maybe uh, some of the things, like the, their methodology, methodology for like creating the town and how they were leading it. Okay, good. <laughs> I mean, no, and that's actually a really good point because, you know, Concord as a town played a starring role in the start of the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. um, but it only has, it, that's all we really know about it, right? Mm -hmm. we, we know um, in April of 1775, April 19th of 1775, um, the British marched out of Boston to mm -hmm. confiscate the military supplies at Concord. It was like the primary armory within the colony. Mm -hmm. And there is a military confrontation between the British and the local militia at Concord um, and at North Old North Bridge, the sort of famous site. And that encounter was like two to three minutes, um, but it marked what would become the beginning of a much, much longer military engagement. Mm -hmm. So that could be the end of the story, right? Yeah. Like, however, if we wanna think about it contextually, we wanna think about, well, how did Concord get to this point? How did yeah. they get to this point of, having this military confrontation with the British troops? How did they get to the point of being prepared 
to confront the British troops as a militia? Um, how did they get to the point of being the primary armory and the site and location for these British supplies? All of that requires, you know, zooming out a little bit more, right? It requires thinking about the bigger picture, right? Mm -hmm. So everything that happened in the past has a bigger picture, but historians need to re reconstruct that, right? So yeah. trying to understand Concord and its role in the American Revolution, I'm trying to construct a larger context mm -hmm. to understand where this community came from, who were its residents, what compelled them to decide to be part of this resistance to the British. Mm -hmm. So that is a skill. Contextualization is a skill that I think is critical to my role that I play as an administrator. Absolutely. So I might get a faculty member or somebody else who's maybe a department chair that I work with or a, a colleague, another division head from across the university or perhaps the provost or the undergraduate dean who might be coming to me with a concern or a problem that we want to work on to solve or an initiative to pursue, what I see as part of my role, and that's when I lean into this kind of historical skill set, is I want to understand the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. I want to understand, well, where is the problem coming from? Like who, who might we need to talk to? Mm -hmm. What data might we need to gather to understand the nature of the problem, how extensive the problem is before we move into solution phase. Yeah. Or if it's an initiative, who do we need to talk to about what do we what would we need to do to pursue the initiative? What kinds of resources might we need, personnel or financial? Um, so that contextualization piece is really about asking questions mm -hmm. and thinking about, well, who do I need to talk to and what kind of data would I need to make in order to make a more informed decision that's good for the institution, that's good for maybe a program. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so that's one. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other piece to sort of give you that example on the skill set side, mm -hmm. I think on the other side, in terms of why I study history and how I convey that in my classrooms and my interactions with students, is recognizing that we're talking about human beings. Mm -hmm. They are most definitely human beings who lived in the 13th century, the 16th century, mm -hmm. the 18th century. So there are features of their experiences that are very distinct and unique to those kind of sociocultural environments. Mm -hmm. um, but like I try, try to tell my students, they're still human beings, mm -hmm. right? They're still very complex. They're not black or white. They're gray. Mm -hmm. um, and I always like to tell them, like, I love um, John and Abigail Adams. They're like my favorite historical couple. And I love bringing in their letters that they exchanged with one another mm -hmm. while they were married. But he was in Philadelphia for the Continental Congress. And she's back at home in Quincy, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. managing the farm, taking care of the kids watching the British off in Boston, you know, deciding to inoculate our children against smallpox. Mm -hmm. I was like, we see in that exchange of their letters, their humanity. Yeah. Um, and to me, 
understanding human relationships of the past has helped me understand how I like to or want to engage in human relationships in the present, right? I want to understand that we all are complex individuals. And so I, I want that to be integrated into the role that I play. Um, and that, you know, there's going to be business at hand. I'm going to have a meeting with a student to talk about their writing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have a meeting with a faculty member to talk about their professional development, but that's just one part of who they are. And so I really take leadership um, seriously as an avenue to integrate all of who we are into Mm -hmm. the work that we do, um, or at least acknowledging that all of who we are is integrated into the work that we do, whether consciously or unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on a little bit, and I think that this is a, a really great question, and I think something students don't think about a lot is um, what advice would you give to students who mm-hmm. may not understand the reasons behind the humanities requirements? I know there's a big push for um, kind of like I think in European countries where you would go to, um, I guess it would be considered high school, and then you would immediately branch off into whatever your your um, field of interest is. And there would be sure. no sort of uh, general curriculum that everyone had to have. It was more like you did high school, now go do this. Um, right. Where you would kind of go just trajectory towards a, a major program, mm-hmm. a professional program that's solely oriented towards the the Correct. Yeah. Um, I know that's what they do a lot for medical schools. So you'll go to high school and then you'll immediately just start studying medicine. There's no like English requirement. There's no math requirement. There's no history requirement or anything. Um, so I'm curious as to what advice you would give to students who may be unsure of the reasoning behind why there are humanities requirements. Sure, sure. And that's, it's, it's a great question. And it's, I think it's, it's challenging to, you know, I think, I think um, sort of, again, contextualization coming into play here in thinking about um, how within society we currently look at the purpose of higher education, um, at the least at the collegiate and university level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, you know, and the purpose of higher education has, has its own kind of history as well. And mm-hmm. the kind of curriculum that a lot of students would have taken really at the turn of the 20th century um, really would have been tor- tipped towards kind of a classical education, liberal arts focus. And and only with time did more professional elements become introduced into the curriculum. And so I think Mm -hmm. the pendulum is swinging Mm -hmm. or has swung. And I think currently within in in society, um, there is a focus on higher education as you know, job preparation, and and it is, it's most definitely that, it's career preparation and and professional preparation, or as I like to think about it, vocational, right? It's not just a job, but what am I meant to be doing? And that's Mm -hmm. why I love the liberal arts as as an institution. Um, And so I think a lot of our students kind of come in with that mindset and Mm -hmm. and that's influenced by a number of different factors, Mm -hmm. society, maybe individuals in their lives who are wanting to, you know, ensure that 
their children understandably um, are going to have a return on their their investment of that degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've increasingly done when I talk with my history major students or when I am promoting the history program to a prospective student is really emphasize not solely about the knowledge that they'll obtain, right? Mm -hmm. Over the course of your four years at DeSales, no matter what your degree is in, you're going to acquire knowledge. Mm -hmm. At the same time, however, knowledge is at our fingertips or information is at our fingertips. What I think is more increasingly more important is for my students and any student to understand is what do we do with that information? What do we do with that knowledge? Whether that's knowledge or information that we're directly applying in our respective field, whether it's accounting or nursing or a TV director or a dance major or a physician or a PA, Mm -hmm. um, but also, do I know how to use that knowledge in a manner that is um, acknowledging the humanity of those whom it might impact mm-hmm. um, ethically, morally? Um, have I asked questions in order to move through a project appropriately? Um, and so, you know, can you make a direct connection of, oh, I've learned some of that, (laughs) you know, from an English literature course or a history course, it might be hard, but that's what those kinds of courses help to do. Mm -hmm. Um, They help to cultivate, they're often called soft skills, which Mm -hmm. I think is a little bit of a disservice, right? A soft skills versus the skills. They're changing it into, um, I think, um, in terms of like the higher education, I think they want to transfer it into or they think that's more appropriate to call it transferable skills. Right. Um, yeah. Because and they are transferable. They are most definitely transferable. And they're more transferable than the hard skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the hard skills are often very narrowly focused on a particular task or in mm-hmm. relationship to a particular profession. Um, the transferable skills, these kind of critical skills of effective communication, whether written or verbally, mm-hmm. problem solving how to ask the questions, knowing what questions to ask, adaptability mm-hmm. uh, to new challenges, being able to pivot, right? We know all about that now. Um, creative thinking, willingness to tackle new challenges and enter into difficult projects. You can do that in any field, right? Yep. Any profession, any organization is going to want that kind of skill set. You know, in a liberal arts education, either in a general education curriculum, you're having that cultivated across different types of of liberal arts programs and disciplines, Mm -hmm. or if it's a history major, they're having that cultivated specifically within the historical discipline. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's one really concrete value. And again, sometimes that payoff won't be there, or the recognition of that payoff won't be there until later down the line. Yeah. Um, but I think what there is the value there too is it expands our our world views, right? It expands our ways of thinking and it, and it challenges 
where we're comfortable in learning. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I often tell students who are, when most, this is most of the case who are non-majors, often they think the history class should be their easiest class. And I actually tell them, no, this is actually going to be your most challenging Mm -hmm. because your comfort level and your interest level is more oriented towards your major program. And that's understandable. That's where your intellectual strengths are. That's where your cognitive strengths are. That's what, you know, hopefully is driving you through these four years and into a a career. This is not your area of comfort. Yeah. Maybe in terms of the content and, and that could be shaped by you had bad experiences in the past or you're just not as interested or cognitively, it's not as, it's not where your brain kind of is used to functioning and mm-hmm. functioning um, it, it, or cultivating a skill set that you're not used to. So it's like, no, this actually is going to be your most challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's value in being stretched intellectually. There's value mm-hmm. in being stretched cognitively to see through, okay, well, what can I learn here? How can I think about developing a different skill set? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think both, you know, the kind of those transferable skills is, is a big piece of the puzzle. And, and I think for us, it's, it's as faculty and staff at the university is helping our students understand what those skill sets are and mm-hmm. how they're being obtained within the classroom. And then how can they translate that when they are in communication with an employer, either as an internship or when they are on the job market to be able to speak to that um, in a specific way. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, that expansiveness of, of the world in which you can enter into, whether historically, you know, I transport my students to 18th century colonial America, mid 19th century United States prior to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be thinking about, I'm teaching a photographing American history course this semester. So we're going to be thinking about the dynamics of technological development and photography as an an art form in relationship to history, like that expands what, you know, expands your world and understanding of how individuals have lived in the past um, and what they valued and what they struggled with. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that that helps us make, make, helps make us more empathetic individuals in relationships to the world in which we're currently living. I agree completely. I think two points to that is um, when I first started off at Rutgers, my my roommate was an English major. Okay. Um, so completely different sides of the world. And then at one point, I was taking like a writing class and she was taking a biology class. And we were like, these are the two hardest classes of our lives. <laughs> and it was really funny. Uh, she has her master's in English now, which is really awesome. And she's uh, going on to be a teacher for, I think, like fifth or sixth grade English. Um, but she, oh my goodness, to just be able to learn from someone with a different sort of view of the world and how she was viewing my the science passages and mm-hmm. I was viewing the English passages, which just completely different. And I think too, um, I just took the MCAT about a month ago and on the MCAT, it has your solid hard skills Mm -hmm. like um, organic chemistry, chemistry, biochemistry, biology, um, psych social, which is sort of getting into something that 
used to be more liberal arts based but is now sort of creeping into like the science hard sciences sciences social sciences yeah Yeah. Uh, but one of the sections on there is cars which is critical uh and critical analytical reasoning skills um which is basically um 59 questions of passages from philosophy (laughs) history um i had some really interesting ones about like uh, texts from like the 1500s and how they've like developed over time and all these questions about them and how you're able to critically analyze a passage. Um, and people don't think about these things when they're studying for a test that's supposed to be, you know, all science and supposed to get you into medical school. Sure. And it proved to be my hardest section just because I was not used to, I was used to sitting down and reading um, like you know, journals that are like uh, experiments. And like, that's tough to read because it's just confusing. Um, But things like English and just like very dense philosophy passages or history passages, and then having to pull out Mm -hmm. what's going on and like what the opinions are. It's something that proved way more difficult than I initially expected. (laughs) Um, But it goes to show, you know, you're most challenged in places where you're either uncomfortable or don't have the most experience. Um, and I really think that sort of rounding out your education with more more and more history and English, if you're not particularly like an English major, is helpful because it just ends up making it easier in the long run because that's not the first time you're ever gonna come across a passage or anything of that sort. And people read things all the times so and you need to learn how to read to um, read the context better and to understand more in big big picture which is what you mentioned before and I think that's something that particularly science majors sometimes lose sight of because we're all about like just the facts <laughs> um, so you sure, you right. lose sight of the big picture sometimes <laughs> yeah, yeah and I think you know you're mentioning a couple of things there the the notion of of you know cultivating sharp edged thinking right mm-hmm. when you're looking at those passages and presenting being presented with passages that are outside your fields or outside of what you would expect to see on an MCAT um, is not just about the knowledge that you're acquiring, but can you think about, how can you Mm -hmm. think about this text? Um, And in a lot of ways, I mean, uh, full disclosure, like I had a a wellness checkup yesterday Mm -hmm. and the physician treated me like a text, right? I I was a text um, that the physician sees like once a year for this wellness checkup. Mm And the physician is asking me questions, right? And granted, some of those questions are like the questions they're gonna ask every single patient um, when he or she or they come in. But sometimes the question asked was a jumping off question based upon something I had said. Mm -hmm. So that means that the physician is listening. Great, Mm -hmm. thank you. (laughs) Uh, But also recognizing, okay, maybe this is an area I need to think ask a little bit more about in relationship to why I am there for that, that, you know, doctor's appointment. Mm-hmm. So that, that makes a difference is, is the listening and the attentiveness to, well, what am, what am I going to do with this knowledge and how do I want to move forward with that? Mm-hmm. Um, and at your point about you taking the writing class and your classmate taking the, the science class, I love how you were bringing your disciplinary lens into that context mm-hmm. um, and how that informs 
your interaction with those those kinds of texts. Because mm-hmm. um, I know a colleague of mine, Dr. Wild, teaches medicine and literature. Mm-hmm. So she often gets a lot of nursing and a lot of PA students, but they're dealing with literary texts from the mm-hmm. ancient period forward so they can bring in their knowledge very much kind of contemporary based knowledge about medicine mm-hmm. and how does that inform their interaction with these texts from the ancient period or the the 17th century mm-hmm. that have a very different view and approach to what would have been considered medicine. Mm-hmm. So those disciplinary lenses that we bring to the table can be really valuable for a learning experience. And that's, I think, what's great about the liberal arts too, is it's not oh, only you know, one set of students, you know, I'll have TV film majors and uh, nursing students and some from accounting and and some from, you know, the physician assistant all in a class on history, right? They're all going to have some of that disciplinary specific um, uh, angle on mm-hmm. how we, we look at the past. And that can have a great value to the learning experience. Absolutely. Um, my final question for you and something that I think is just um, we learn so much about um, other people's experiences is what is one piece of advice that you would give to your past self? Okay, so I'm, I had a really long list when I took notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and oh, to boil it down, I, you know, um, I, I think in thinking about, especially my, my students and the past year with COVID um, and, and seeing how much my students are trying to do, mm-hmm. how much they're trying to cram into their lives. And I'm notorious for overestimating what I can do in a single day or overestimating <laughs> what I can do in a period of time. Um, I'm, I tend to be a yes person. Um, and yeah. I, working on saying no. So, so that would be one. I, I would encourage my students to learn how to say no and recognizing that saying no to a project or to an opportunity or, you know, to a friend that, hey, I just can't go out right now because I need a little time for myself. That is not bad. Mm-hmm. Um, that saying no to something else means saying yes to what you might need in the meantime. I was thinking Kristen Eicholtz uh, used to tell me that our first, one of the first podcasts I did with her, and she said it to me personally too, because I'm too much of a yes person. <laughs> She's like saying no is saying yes to yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And recognizing that it's, it's not a, it's not a reflection of your value or your worth as a human Mm -hmm. being, because you didn't say yes, or, and where, you know, your fears of saying no might come from. And, and for me, that's traditionally been, I don't want to be seen as a disappointment or letting somebody down or, you know, continually feeling that I would need to prove myself professionally or in, in any other context, Mm -hmm. but that I've, only just started to become comfortable with the idea that I can say no, let alone actually saying no. Yeah. Um, and so, th- so that's one piece and maybe just one other one. Yeah. Um, I would say lean into being vulnerable because um, we are 
whether we think about it or not, we are Mm -hmm. always vulnerable, right? Whether it's in the classroom and we're facing new content or a new skill in the lab, um, or if it's in personal relationships with friendships or significant others or family, Mm -hmm. um, COVID, like lean into the vulnerability. Don't armor up to sort of quote my like favorite podcast person, Brene Brown right now, like avoid armoring up or when you do start to armor up, cause you don't want to be hurt. Um, you don't want to fail, mm-hmm. uh, rather lean into vulnerability because that's where we're going to learn the most. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not always going to be pleasant. It's going to be hard. Um, but I feel like it's where I've been most vulnerable, especially with the areas of my life that I don't feel I'm as strong at mm-hmm. and that I'm cultivating at being better at, um, whether personally or professionally, it's come from being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, to me, that that's a, that's a big piece of the puzzle. And I wouldn't have wanted to be vulnerable. Well, I still don't, but um, I wouldn't have wanted to be vulnerable when I was younger. I liked things to be controlled. I like things to be in their place. Mm-hmm. Um, vulnerability opens the floodgates to not being in control and things being out of place and being Mm -hmm. messy and complex. And so that, that would be my other piece of advice is lean into the vulnerability. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Niger, I feel like you've given us a wonderful um, reasoning behind, you know, the importance of liberal arts and also what you love about it. I think sharing your passions with others just makes it it just puts it in a new light as well. So I really thank you so much for your time and, you know, for sharing all of your experiences with us. Yeah. Thank you, Kylie. This is, this has been fun. Um, <laughs> I, I think this, I, again, I, I don't, I feel like I just scratched the surface of some of my notes. Um, this will, this will be some good foundation as I start thinking about reinteracting with my, my students and, and colleagues when we all return in the fall semester. So I've enjoyed our time together. Wonderful.